This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, we will be speaking with Michael Oren, a native of New Jersey. Michael moved to Israel in 1979 and began one of the great Zionist stories of our lifetime. Michael Oren, who raised a beautiful family in Jerusalem, is the author of several of the most important works of history and diplomacy of our generation, specifically Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, America in the Middle East, and Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide. He also served as the Israeli ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013, and followed that service with membership in the Knesset from the Kulanu Party and as a deputy prime minister. Michael, who has taught at several major universities in Israel and the United States, has been named by the Jerusalem Post as one of the 10 most influential Jews in the world. He has a magnificent collection of short stories entitled The Night Archer, forthcoming in September, and is available for pre-order on Amazon now. Now, we are here today to discuss Numbers 32, which is the canonical biblical story of Israel-Diaspora relations. So, Michael, Moses is getting ready to bring the tribes across the Jordan to the Promised Land. And who are the tribes of Reuben and God, and what do they say? Well, first of all, thank you for that very warm introduction, Mark. I'm I'm delighted to be um, with the rabbi's husband, and uh, thank you for mentioning uh, The Night Archer, my forthcoming book. I've always been deeply moved by this chapter in the Bible, and it's interesting. Um, Numbers, it it begins with with two themes. One theme, in Hebrew, the the parasha of the week is called matot, which translates from even modern Hebrew as the heads of headquarters. And Moses is speaking to the heads of tribes. And he said, if you make a vow, you got to keep the vow. It's interesting. Hmm. And then right from that commandment, we go into a battle between uh, the children of Israel and the Midianites. And the children of Israel win. And they win in an area of what is today northern Jordan, the the Gilead uh, in the Bible. Then you have these two tribes. The tribes are prepared to move across the Jordan into the promised land. It's the moment that Moses has waited for now for 40 years. The drama is very high. And along comes two tribes, God and Ruven, and say, no, I think we're going to stay here because we have cattle. We don't just have sheep and we want to stay here. The grazing land is good. We're going to build cities and you guys go. You guys go and fight those Canaanites and all those tribes, Tais, the Jebusites, everybody who's waiting to do battle with you on the other side of the Jordan. And Moses, and Moses in a way that is perhaps only rivaled by his temper tantrum coming down from the top of Sinai and seeing the golden calf, Moses, for want of a better term, loses it. He gets Mm. extremely, extremely angry at them and calls them sinful people and really gives them an earful, so much so that some Jewish commentators like Nachmanides thought that he went overboard, that he was too critical, hypercritical. I have always been deeply moved by this passage. It can be read on many levels. It can be read as Christian commentators have read it, as the need for, to the people of God to remain within a covenant. You don't break the covenant. In the case of Christians, the covenant between God and and Jesus Christ and his believers. It can be read on an anthropological, almost sociological way. Here is a people in transition, a transition from being a nomadic people to being an urban and agrarian people. And clearly the 
the Jewish law of the Torah is a, is a law that is made for a city-dwelling and farm-dwelling people, not for a nomadic people. You know, note our holidays, the harvest holidays. Hmm. Here's the first tribe that comes along and says, hey, we're not going to be grazing sheep. We're going to be, we have cattle. Cattle don't need to move from field to field. We need actually stability. And God and Reuben are very explicit by saying, we're going to build here. We're going to build cities. And it's an interesting characteristic of the Jewish people. Jews build cities. We're in Israel today. And it's interesting that Arabs don't build cities. Uh, the last true Arab city to be built was Ramla in the seventh century. And perhaps more recently, uh, Rawabe in the West Bank, but it remains pretty much uninhabited. But Jews build cities. And, and you see it here in the Bible for the first time. But as you say, Mark, it really becomes a primer. Chapter 32.6 becomes a primer on relations between Israel and the diaspora, on the nature of Jewish peoplehood, of the later Talmudic notion of all of Israel is responsible for one another, and it's an extraordinary moment. Moses, as I said, is furious. He's furious because he said that God and Reuben are reenacting the sin of the pessimistic spies. Remember this one? Yes, and, and Moses actually said, after, as, as you put it, he loses it, and then he says to them, why do you dissuade the heart of the children of Israel from crossing to the land? So he was concerned that their reluctance to join their brethren in the promised land would demoralize the soon-to-be Jews who would need to be fighting to get the land. Which harkens back to a, a, a chapter in, in Deuteronomy about the laws of war and about conscription. Because hmm. the Bible, the Torah is very, very explicit by saying, if you're faint of heart, don't go to war because you'll discourage other people. You'll demoralize other fighters. So we have two, two tribes, not individuals, who are saying, we're not going. We're going to stay here. Again, they're breaking their word. And that's what the, the Pasha opens up the need for covenant in the, and in the face of battle. And there is a compromise that's reached because God and Ruben go and they think about it. Yeah, it, 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 it struck me. They have a very honest discussion. They have a true negotiation where both parties state explicitly what they're thinking, what their intentions are, and what they strategically want to accomplish. Yeah, so it's probably a good primer for negotiating tactics, too. Right. So they come back and they say, okay, we're going to send our armed men with you across the Jordan, and we're going to fight alongside you. But when the battle's over, we're going to come back here to our cattle and our cities, and we're going to settle in, in this area of the Galad. And Moses says, okay. But not before he says that, that the classic line, are you going to let your brethren go over the Jordan and fight alone? Is that what you're going to do? It's also a, a, one of the first, I say, poignant examples of Jewish guilt. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Jewish guilt. You know, you're going to let your brothers do this. What can we learn from this? How can we extrapolate this to Israel relations, to Jewish peoplehood, and to relationship between the state of Israel and the Jewish diaspora in the United States and elsewhere? What the message here is that without Jewish unity, we're going to forfeit our birthright. And Moses is very explicit about this again. He says, what happened with those spies, they came back and they gave a pessimistic account of what they saw in the land of Israel, and the Jewish people lost heart. And because of that, God punished us, and we, wa we wandered in the desert for 40 years. So without Jewish unity, there's a price to be paid. God is going to exact the price for us for not being together. But the Gadites and the Reubenites seem to convince Moses that Jewish unity can be achieved even with geographical diversity, with them being outside the land, they said, by being your vanguard, by being your shock troops, we'll have Jewish unity. We just won't be living as one. Well, you can do that. That but there's the. I think that's the paradigm for Israel-Dasper relations. 
that Jews can live outside the land, but they have to remain committed to Jewish peoplehood, particularly in times of need, in warfare, in times of war, certainly, but not just in times of war. And the whole, the sort of the, 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 that paradigm, not to belabor the term, of, of giving to the state of Israel, of supporting lone soldiers or universities or Hasala, in the case of Mark Gerson's favorite charity here, this is what the Bible here is calling on the Jewish people to do if they are not living in the land of Israel. And I think another lesson from this story is the importance of solidarity around values. So when the Godites and the Reubenites approached Moses, they said, pens for the flock shall we build here for our livestock and for our small children. And when Moses permits him to do it, he reverses it. And he said, build for yourself cities for your children and pens for your flock. In other words, telling the Godites and the Reubenites, your children will come first. That's interesting. Okay, see, I didn't see, there's so many different layers to this very small passage that you can read many, many things into it. You know, interestingly, in terms of Zionist history, this passage will come to have a profound impact. Huh. Well, if you remember that uh, the Balfour Declaration, 1917, promises Palestine to the Jews as a national home. Now, no one had actually knew what the boundaries of Palestine were, because Palestine was not a country. It wasn't even an Ottoman province. It was like sort of like an area, like Appalachia. Think about it. Think New England. Interesting. Huh. And nobody knew where it was. And so the early Zionist leaders, as well as the British Christian Zionists, went back to their Bible. And one of the places they went back to was this chapter in Numbers 32, where they say Moses is basically giving sort of ex post facto a seal of approval, an imprimatur to what will become later Transjordan being part of the land of Israel. And so when the Balfour Declaration becomes a part of the League of Nations mandate for Palestine, by the way, that was enacted 100 years ago this week, by the way, Mark, at, at, uh, at the San Remo Conference, the borders of Palestine conform not to the area to the west of the Jordan River, but to both sides. And the logo of uh, what would become the revisionist Zionist movement of Jabotinsky, which is the forebear of the movement that produced Begin and Benjamin Netanyahu, is that there are two banks to the Jordan. And even historically, the Jordanians have uh, excavated a great number of Jewish artifacts and cities to the east of the Jordan, including the tombs of the priestly Tobiad family right in Amman itself. And, and these are presumably the heirs to the Godites and the Reubenites. But, but be, at the time of the Second Temple, the area of what is today Jordan was thought of as an inseparable part of the land of Israel, so much so that the, the, the temple priests would live there. So the British knew their Bible. The early Zionists knew their Bible. And it wasn't until the British, had, needing to compensate the Hashemite family for the loss of, of Syria and Iraq, decided to divide Palestine between what was called Palestine and Transjordan, which in April 1950 became Jordan, Transjordan being the stuff that's on the other side of the Jordan. But the political reality of the Middle East today has its roots in, among other places, this chapter of the Torah. Does the social reality in terms of the relationships between diaspora Jews and Israel also have its roots in this passage? So when and how do Israelis feel discouraged by American Jews as Moses feared that the Jews of his day would be discouraged by the Godites and the Reubenites if they did not join with the soon-to-be Israeli people in their moment of need. So the most painful example I could give you would be the Iran nuclear deal. It was a, a chapter in which I was very much involved, and it was, a, it was a profound trauma for Israeli leaders, I must say. And the statistic that was so painful here showed that the majority of American Jews supported the Iran nuclear deal. This is a deal which 
the vast majority of Israelis, this one included, view it, viewed as a, a primary threat to our security, uh, to our children, our grandchildren, even to perhaps our existence as a country. And when called on to support the state of Israel, majority of American Jews said no. But for political reasons, we're going to we are going to back this Iran nuclear deal. And I know that subsequent decisions made by the Israeli government, for example, withdrawing from the Kotel arrangement, which uh, allowed for a liberal Jewish practice at the Kotel, the Israeli government initially approved it, then withdrew from it. Much of that withdrawal was informed by the deep, deep disappointment in American Jews. And many people referred back to this chapter that the the American Jewish community, most of it, was like the, the Gadites, the Reubenites, before they reached the compromise with Moses. So what is the modern day equivalent of the compromise that succeeded? So what's effectively the deal today that can work for the modern day equivalents of Moses and the Gadites and the Reubenites, where there's uh, no discouragement, no dissatisfaction? Uh, to the contrary, there's a partnership between the modern-day diaspora Jews, who are the heirs to the guys of the Reubenites, and the Israeli Jews, who are the heirs to Moses and 10 of the 12 tribes that settled. Well, for again, a great many Israelis, the notion of, uh, that, that all Jews should live here is deeply, is deeply ingrained in, in our consciousness. It's, it's part of the Zionist ethos. And for a great number of American Jews, they view America as the promised land. Israel is also the promised land. It's interesting, for example, the birthright movement, leaders, Israeli leaders who speak to American Jewish groups who come from the, come from the United States, are actually forbidden to talk about making Aliyah. <laughs> it's part of a deal that we have with the American Jewish uh, donors to the, to the birthright program. So, okay, we honor that, at least, you know, in, in absence of word. And I think most Israelis also understand that the diaspora is legitimate, the diaspora is vibrant, but there is an expectation, an expectation that that diaspora will stand by us. And that's the modern equivalent of what's happening in numbers here. And I think that uh, for Jews in the diaspora, I think it's, it's less an issue for Jews living in countries like Australia or in Argentina or in France. But in the United States, it is a source of controversy. That expectation can go into many areas. For example, Israelis will expect American Jews to approve of this current American administration's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And the majority of American Jews did not give that support. Mm. The, uh, the, rec- the, the administration's recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Again, not a majority of American Jews, less of a controversial issue, but still. So that creates a disappointment. And of course, American Jews then are disappointed in many things that Israel does and related to the peace process or to pluralism or the lack of pluralism in this country. So we, we see the type of, of example that Moses and the tribes of God and Reuben set in the Bible. We see it being challenged today, particularly in the United States. So there, there was a tension then, and there's a tension now. And I think an interesting attribute to the tension in the Bible is that after this great compromise was struck, and really is a great compromise, a model of a successful negotiation, Moses says that the children of God, the children of Reuben can settle where, the, where they had requested. And he adds half the tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. So Moses obviously saw some value to some Jews being in the diaspora, as long as they were united, particularly when... Israel was threatened and needed everyone's support. Or you can, you can read, here's another level of reading, is that Moses wanted a, a strategic um, sort of uh, depth to what would become the Jewish state, the ancient Jewish state. And remember, the great empires are lying immediately to the east of this country. Astridus were the Babylonians and the Persians later, and the Assyrians, uh, who would uh, later make our lives uh, miserable. So it's giving us a bit of strategic depth. Very interesting. Now, Michael, thank you for that really enlightening discussion on Numbers 32. And let me just turn to uh, 
just one last question. Um, so in Andre Maru's uh, 1968 book entitled Anti-Memoir, he tells the story of um, a man who we just recently run into. He said he had served with him in the war. He said this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are the two things that you've learned about mankind? And this man said, I've learned two things. He said, one, that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh-huh. So, Michael, in all of your years as uh, a historian and as a diplomat and as a par- parliamentarian and as really one of the great Zionists, living one of the great Zionist stories of this generation, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? About mankind or about the Jewish people? Either one. Either one. Uh, mankind is that... Um, that since we were in caves, the question of who's going to run the cave, i.e. politics, has always been a brutal and, uh, and often lethal affair. And politics are politics, and, and they are rough. And that's just, a, it, it is part and parcel of the human condition. The other thing I've learned, by contrast, is that goodness and courage are possible, very, very frequently possible when you least expect it, uh, whether it be the people who fought in the resistance in France against the Nazis, or right now down the street from one of Israel's major medical centers, from the Wolfson Center, where doctors, nurses, orderlies are literally risking their lives with no further inducement other than, you know, other than doing their duty. That is courage at the most inspiring and unexpected way. Hmm. And it's happening around the world. And I think we have to be very conscious of it. How about for the Jewish people? What, what, what have you learned about the Jewish people in all of your years of living the great Zionist experience of, uh, of our generation? Well, I, le- I, I learned just what's in this chapter of the Torah, that on one hand, we are an impossible people. <laughs> we are stiff-necked. We, are, we can be very difficult. We complain a tremendous amount, which is always funny. They always saw these international polls. They always say that Israel is one of the happiest countries in the world, which is very funny because people do nothing but complain here. But we, at the same time, we are this immeasurably creative strong, unified people. And again, I've seen it during this corona crisis I, I, and, and the way Israel has come through this crisis so far with um, virtually no upheaval and one of the lowest mortality rates anywhere in the world to our discipline and our caring. So we are both at the same time. And it, it's in moments like this of crisis where, where, where the creativity and the strength and the unity come out very strong. Another interesting thing about Israeli self-reporting is seemingly every Israeli says that Israelis are terrible drivers. And yet, so so many Israelis said this that I went and uh, just checked the data and it turns out the um, road fatality in Israel is pretty much right in the middle of the Western world, implying that Israelis are not particularly bad drivers, despite the fact that seemingly every Israeli says that all Israelis are bad drivers. Yes, Mm -hmm. they all do. What accounts for this discrepancy that speaks to a real self-critical element element of the Israeli people, maybe the Jewish people? Well, if, if we are self-critical. Again, you're going to see that same characteristic in the Bible. Anybody has any doubt that we are directly descended from the children of Israel? The Bible just has to look at Israeli society, and you'll see it. A- again, that statistic saying that Israel is one of the, ha- the Israelis are among the happiest peoples in the world shocks Israelis because we're not happy. We're, everything's terrible here. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and it's the same thing with the drama. 
drivers. And we, we have some pretty bad drivers. We've got people come from different cultures, particularly, you know, the Bedouin and the Negev are notorious. Some of the Russians can be notorious, you know, because they come from different driving traditions. But I, you know, if you, if you take a little bit of a, a step back, I'm aware that not only are Israelis no worse than many other drivers and any other people, but that, that the driving has, inc- has improved tremendously over the, 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 pe- the previous decades. And also our infrastructure has improved immensely. So yes, and e- even the, the, the bugbears of, of Israeli society, if you moved to Israel when I did, it was in the 70s, you would be shocked by the lack of respect for personal space in line for a bank and somebody would be looking at your bank statements and asking you how much you, you earned. And When was this, in the, in the 70s and 80s? 70s, yes. Very common to be in line in the bank and someone to come over and like come over and look at your bank statement. That would never happen now, right? It would never happen now. It has never happened to me in years. So what changed and why? And also a service, to, a service economy uh, where people learn how to be waiters and, or, or service people. The old waiters in the 70s will say, well, why should I take your order? Who are you? <laughs> really? I think it has to do with Israel growing up. We at, at 72 years old next week. Um, we are older than half the countries in the UN today. We're not kids anymore. And we've been open to the world every year. About half the country travels somewhere. You know, about 15% of Americans have passports, but over almost all Israelis have passports, at least one. And so we've learned about the world. We've been exposed to the world. The world has come and seen us. And this has had an impact. You know, again, there are some rough edges here. And some of those rough edges we, did, we need because we live in a rough neighborhood. You know, this is not Canada, and it's not even Belgium. But overall, Israeli society and Israeli manners, Israeli civility, I think has, has uh, evolved immeasurably since the 60s and the 70s. Now, uh, Michael, you grew up in uh, New Jersey, actually in the same county I did. You grew up in uh, West Orange, or I grew up in in Short Hills. And one of the many uh, great things that you've done for me was introduce me to Israel probably 16, 17 years ago. What do you miss about Essex County? The pizza. (laughs) I grew up in, we grew up in different places. You grew up in a Jewish area. I grew up in an Italian area. Right. And uh, we had some really great pizza. What was your favorite pizza from West Orange? Ah, the Starlight Pizza. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, it's, it's still there, I think, on the corner. Yeah. Pleasant Valleyway, great place. Some terrific, uh, there was also Star Tavern, which doesn't exist anymore. Great pizza. You know, had that little layer of olive oil on the top. Nothing was great. So that, you know, I missed that. And I guess my parents are still in the same house I grew up in. You know them well. Oh, we know and love your parents. And your father was a hero in the Battle of the Bulge. My father landed on Normandy and fought all through World War II. was a hero in World War II. And they're in the same house I grew up in. So going back, you know, I grew up in... I traveled the same streets, the same neighborhoods. And it's interesting. It, it, the, the town where I grew up in was, was, was Italian, some Jews. Now it's overwhelmingly African-American, Indian, Asian. And I went to speak at my old high school. And I told the, 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 audit, the auditorium, I got there, I said, you know, when I was here, there wasn't a single African-American in the school. And there was an audible gasp. <laughs> there. They can't imagine this, 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 kind, this, this school not being sort of racially integrated. It just was. I mean, we didn't even have wasps. We didn't have Protestants in the school. Or was it the Catholic or Jewish? But that's that's changed, and um, and I think changed for the better. Well, uh, Michael, thank you so much for a great conversation. I would just encourage everyone to uh, to order the Night Archer, which is just this beautiful collection of short stories. Michael, you wrote one story every morning for for years, right? Well, I, I, in I, in government, you could write, but you couldn't publish. So one of the ways you you deal with the brutality of government is to get up early every morning and, and write short fiction. So these are sixty short stories, which are, are very very different. You know, there's love stories, there's war stories, there's, there's, there's science fiction stories, there's historical stories that I, you know, put my heart and soul into, and I hope my, my readers will enjoy them very much. I'm sure they will. So, Michael, thank you for a great conversation. Thank you. We'll be the well. Really well.